Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Well, it's Tuesday. Oh my goodness sakes, he came in with all his uh, regalia, his western fringe, and his uh, great big 10-gallon hat. Good morning, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you, buddy? Good. Sunshine out there. Temporarily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not too bad. You got any thank yous this week? Oh, uh, you know, I had one of our listeners uh, send me a, uh, a, a picture of... Uh, a beet pile uh-huh. back in, oh gosh, I should have looked. I want to say Minnesota or wherever he, I can't remember. I should have looked. Anyway, he also sent me a uh, YouTube video of a guy with a guitar and his partner doing a song standing on a beet pile with his guitar singing. I'm a farmer, and I raise sugar beets. Really? It is a great song. We ought to put him out here on some real piles of sugar beets. <laughs> anyway, it's, it is a funny, funny uh, song. What's guy. going on today? Well, we're going to talk about the first-person account of the last survivor, surviving trooper at the Little Bighorn. He was the last guy to finally die in his 90s. I did not know, honestly, before you had mentioned this and before we had done some research on it, I thought that all the soldiers that were within the platoon or the command of Custer had passed away, but that's not true. Uh, you mean had killed, been killed at the battle? Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not sure exactly where he was in relation to Custer, uh, but this is his account, and uh, it was taken from a, an interview that he had, and so I like this because there's a lot of his own words in in this story, and he died at ninety years of age. Yes, yeah, which like that. probably would have put him up into about nineteen thirty forty, something like that. Yeah, probably. okay. Yeah. All yeah. Right. So, but uh, riding with Major Benteen, Private Charlie Windolph, uh, he finds himself surrounded at a spot that will become known as Reno Hill, uh-huh. and here is Windolph's account of what happened the following morning. Quote: Two shots sounded from the hilltop behind me. Uh, soon there was firing all around. It had rained a little during the night, and some of us had taken our overcoats from the candles of our saddles and put them on. It was cold here on this black or bleak hilltop, too, and those old army blue coats felt good. He goes on, my buddy, a young trooper named Jones, who hailed from Milwaukee, was lying alongside me. Together we had scooped out a wide, shallow trench and piled up the dirt to make a little breastwork in front of us. It was plumb light now, and sharpshooters on the knob of a hill south of us and maybe a thousand yards away were taking pot shots at us. Now, I'm going to talk about that distance here in a minute. Really? Now, these were the Sioux that were shooting at the soldiers. Yeah. Exactly. Now, Jones said something about taking off his overcoat, and he started to roll on his side so that he could get to get his arms and shoulders out without exposing himself to fire. Suddenly, I heard him cry out he'd been shot straight through the heart. Really? So he was dead. Yeah. And he goes on, uh, the lead kept splitting around where I lay. Up on the hilltop, I could see a figure firing at me from a prone position. Looked like he was resting his long-range rifle on a bleached buffalo head. Hmm. I tried my best to reach him with my Springfield carbine, but it simply wouldn't carry that far. A few minutes after Jones was killed, a bullet ricocheted from the hard ground and tore into my clothing. 
About this time, the surgeon came up and took a look at Jones. He asked me if I was wounded. I said no, that I was all right. Put your hand inside your shirt, he ordered. I did, and when I pulled it out, it was bloody. The ricocheted bullet had given me a slight flesh wound. Mm. The surgeon wanted to bind it up, but I told him there's plenty of badly wounded men to take care of. A minute or two later, another bullet from the hilltop tore into the hickory butt of my rifle, splitting it squarely in two. Holy smoke. I was pretty mad because my army carbine wouldn't let me return the compliment. Somehow, I always... He was pretty mad? (laughs) Because he couldn't couldn't fire back. Oh, my. Uh, He says, somehow, I always figured that the sharpshooter who'd killed Jones hit me and split my rifle butt. Must have been either a renegade white man or some kind of or another. He could shoot too well to have been a full-blooded Indian. Now, before I mention, Zeb, that the Indians weren't very good shots because they didn't have the ammunition to practice. I've got to interrupt right here, and we've got to be sure and mention, and I had my papers here, but they got covered up. We want to thank Burley Veterinary Hospital for their sponsoring this very interesting segment of Dr. History. Dr. Scott Morley and his very friendly and knowledgeable team at Burley Veterinary Hospital, they take care of all your large and small animal needs. And don't forget, too, offering ambulatory services for large animal services, and I tell you what, they've also got a great after-hour care center for all emergencies. Call them at Burley Veterinary Hospital. I know these people very well. They do a great job at 2869 Overland in Burley, bringing you Dr. History. So we continue with Charlie Windoff's account, and he goes on. He said, the wounded were crying out for water. Finally, Captain Benteen called for volunteers. I think there were 17 of us all together who stepped forward. He detailed four of us from Company H who were extra good marksmen to take up an exposed position on the brow of the hill facing the river. Now, you've been there, Zeb, and Mm -hmm. so have I. And so you can kind of picture, you know, the scene here, uh, what's going on. And he said, we were to stand up and not only draw the fire of the Indians below, but we were to pump as much lead as we could into the bushes where the Indians were hiding, while the water party hurried down to the draw, got their buckets and pots and canteens filled, and then made their way back. It just happened that the four of us who were posted on the hill were all German boys. None of us four were wounded, although we stood exposed on that ridge for more than 20 minutes, and they threw plenty of lead at us. Several of the water party, however, were badly wounded, although we kept up a steady fire into the bushes where the Indians were hiding. Each of us was given a Congressional Medal of Honor. Let me ask you a question, though. This was prior to the actual Custer last stand, right? Well, this is during it. This is during, so there was outbreaks around the perimeter of where the actual last stand was. Right, exactly. Oh. Yeah, so okay. this is during the whole uh, the whole battle. I and gotcha. there were, yeah, skirmishes going around different areas. I see. So, now, um, this is kind of interesting. One of the amazing aspects of the deadly sniper that we talked about, yeah. raining bullets on the exposed troopers on Reno Hill, is that some of them were 900 to 1,000 yards away. Wow. Where did they get the better rifles? Okay. Well, this is far beyond the range of most weapons used by Indians of that day. 
Yeah. So there's a historian named Michael Donahue, and he points out, quote, you couldn't miss basically as you were looking at the solid blue line of blue coat bodies in a straight line lying side by side. It was like standing next to a skirmish line and shooting down on it. You're going to hit someone even if you're not a good shot. So you picture all these guys lined up uh, side by side. Yeah. And you're going to hit somebody, even if you're a bad shot. And the Army was using Sharps uh, rifles, you said. Uh, yes. And I think those were the single shot, right? Breech loaders? I believe so, yeah. yeah. So he goes on, he says, Although most historians concentrate their research on analyzing the role of the Indian marksmen on sharpshooter rigs, there was also Indian snipers shooting at the surrounding troops from the east. Hmm. Now, you and I have talked about this before. In recent years, at the Little Bighorn Battlefield, uh, uh, they've been able to locate where the snipers were shooting from and what kind of weapons they were using. Really? It was a commonly held belief by most of the troopers that the Indians were not good shots, and all sorts of explanations were floated to explain the deadly accuracy of someone shooting from from Sharpshooter Ridge. Now, more than likely, it was several Indians who did all the damage. However, after the battle, and this is kind of interesting, a dead white man was found in a burial tree near the village dressed in full Indian regalia, and some have speculated a renegade Anglo was the deadly shooter. Wow. So they think that there was a, a white man that was oh my again, dressed up as an Indian. And again, the uh, the portrayal of what we always thought at the Little Big, Bighorn River uh, was the fact that it was just Custer. But you're now uh, displacing that theory with facts that they had these skirmishes right. all around the battlefield. Now, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember uh, which was the one that came down and uh, from the east and uh, was driven back uh, down. Major Keel? Yeah, I think it was Keel. So, so there was a skirmish there, and then, you know, different areas. And then there was Reno, too, wasn't there? Right, yeah. So, so again, I want to talk about the, the shooting. Okay. okay. Just to put all this in perspective, a Winchester has about a 200-yard range for accuracy, while a Springfield has about a 600-yard range. And according to Windoff, uh, he mentions a bluff where the Indians are firing from approximately 900 yards away. I can't see that far. That's nine football fields. <laughs> I can't see that far. <laughs> I can't far. either. So anyway, and, you know, when I was there a few years ago, that's after they had had a fire sweep through those hills. Oh. And that's when they were able to go out with uh, metal detectors and find shell casings and even bullets. Really? Yeah. So after the fires of several years ago, researchers were able to locate where the snipers were shooting from and what kind of weapons they were using. One researcher found the main Indian position to the east of Reno Hill, about 800 yards from the troopers. He found about 200 .45-55 caliber casings and about 76 44 caliber Henry Winchester casings. And the archaeological survey of 1989 discovered that the warriors had taken the carbines from the Custer dead and turned them uh, against Reno's battalion. So they'd taken some of the guns from the dead soldiers. So the battle at the Little Bighorn with Custer may have ended, but the skirmishes were still going on. Is that correct? Yeah. So... Timing-wise, we don't know how long these were going on as far as when Custer actually was finally killed off. 
for sure. We don't know yeah. the exact timeline. So according to this Michael Donahue, the last number uh, is, you know, 800 yards. They must have, he says, they must have been pointing them high into the sky, hoping they would drop onto the soldiers. And in fact, many of them did. Yeah. So uh, an amazing, uh, like say, with that fire and the archaeologists, they were able to find like where a particular Indian was shooting because they would find the shell casings. And then they would find his distinct bullets at where he was shooting four, five, six hundred yards away. Holy cow. And you said they were shooting at some distances 900 yeah. yards? Right, yeah. <laughs> now, here's another interesting part of this whole story. Um, you know, our perception today of how Indians dressed and what their camps looked like are largely based on, based on Hollywood, yeah. you know, movies. And we just can't seem to shake it. If one reads George Custer's official reports of his fights with the hostiles on the Yellowstone in 1873, he said temperatures were around 100 degrees. And he complained to the War Department that the enemy were largely dressed in what he called citizens attack higher courtesy of the Indian department and led to confusion on the part of the troops they occasionally couldn't tell friend from foe you're kidding me and here's what he said here's here's his report quote a large number of Indians who fought us were fresh from the agency many of the warriors engaged in the fight on both days were dressed in complete suits of clothes suits of clothes issued at the agencies to the Indians the arms with which they fought us several of which were captured after the fight were of the latest improved patterns of breech-loading repeating rifles, and their supply of metallic rifle cartridges seemed unlimited, as they were anything but sparing in their use. So amply have they been supplied with breech-loading rifles and ammunition that neither bows nor arrows were employed against us. You know, we always have the picture, and I've got pictures and paintings in my office in various books, etc., of Custer's Last Stand. And the mindset is that they were all wearing uh, either breechcloths or, you know, buckskin and shooting arrows or maybe riding bareback at 100 miles an hour, uh, shooting a rifle, single-shot rifle. Boy, you dispelled that. Yeah, well, and... During that battle, maybe most of them were, but this battle that he was involved in was in 1873 at the Yellowstone, so that was kind of a different situation yeah. too so maybe the indians at the bighorn were dressed with with major was it benteen and reno and keo right right so were they all in a circumference around uh where the battle took place with custer yeah they were they were all at, had been ordered at different areas in different places whereas custer had come around uh, back, I want to say back to the north, I believe, yeah. and back up on top of what's called Last Chance Hill. On that uh, hill. Right. So these Indians really outsmarted every one of these uh, divisions, if you will, and they set up these skirmishes with the other soldiers so they couldn't come to the aid of Custer. Exactly. Is that right? Right, because they were wanting to get over there because they knew there was problems because they heard the shooting, and they wanted to get over there. And, you know, I did a story on this several years ago that actually goes into the details of that exactly exact thing. But... Um, you know, you've been there and I've been there, and you drive, what, maybe two miles yeah. across the top of those hills. Yeah. So it was really spread out a long ways. 
Hmm. So now I'm going to continue with uh, this Charlie Windoff. Uh, he says, I suppose it was early in the afternoon when the firing seemed to quiet down. Now and again, bullets would come tearing in, but gradually they became fewer and fewer. Then below, across the Little Bighorn, heavy smoke began drifting southward. Pretty soon it became clear that the Indians were firing the grass. They'd started it on fire. That seemed odd unless they were getting ready to leave. The gunfire had almost ceased and some of us left our trenches and stood in little groups on the brow of the hill. Then something happened that I'll never forget if I lived to be a hundred, and he almost did. <laughs> the heavy smoke seemed to lift for a few moments, and there in the valley below we caught glimpses of thousands of Indians on foot and horseback with their pony herds and their travoy, dogs, and pack animals, and all the trappings of a great camp slowly moving southward. It was like some biblical exodus, the Israelites moving into Egypt, a mighty tribe on the march. And then he goes on. We thought at first that it might must be some trick, that the Indians were only removing their families from danger, and that the warriors would soon return and try to overwhelm us. Patiently we waited in our little trenches. The long June afternoon dragged on. The firing had all but ceased. The smoke in the valley had blown away, and the last Indian was gone. This is amazing to me. I, it breaks the concept of what I thought happened. You, you know, to hear this from a guy that was there, yeah. you know, uh, again, Hollywood and movies kind of romanticized. Well, I want to make thing. sure I understand what you're saying. That after the battle was over, or right. the battle with the skirmishes and everything, everything, they were already packed up and ready to adios, right? I think so. I think probably their families and one, whatnot were taking the teepees And down. where were they headed? Well, it says southward, and so I, as I tried to picture that, I'm not sure. Into Wyoming, or uh, it had to be right uh, towards Wyoming, yeah. towards the Yellowstone area. But anyway, he kept on. He said, while guards kept their post, the rest of the men led such horses were not killed down the steep draw to the river. It was the first drink they had had since early afternoon the day before. Gently, we buried our dead in the shallow trenches we dug for the living. Uh, then Reno ordered the whole camp to move as close to the river as possible. We would get as far away as we could from the terrible stench. There was plenty of water now for the wounded, and towards evening the company cooks made us the best meal they could. At least we had hot coffee and plenty of bacon and soaked hardtack. It was our first meal in 36 hours. Wow. Then night came down. We were weary, but while those on guard were awake and alert, the rest of the company slept, but it was an uneasy sleep. I've got to ask you another question real quick. They're in the river bottom? Yeah, they're down by the river. Now, now this that's is not, not exactly a tactical good place to now, be. Now, this is just some of them. Ah. So there are probably others still spread out I see. over this whole area. So this was just, uh, you know, the, this group, Reno's camp, I, I guess. See. And here's what he says, too. He says, we still had no word from Custer. We began to suspicion that some terrible fate might have overtaken him. What it was, we could only guess. So they still didn't so know. So they didn't know. No. So here's what happened uh, in the aftermath. He says, after the battle, Reno ordered Benteen to take a few officers and 14 troopers to go and find Custer. Now, Charlie Windoff was one of them, and here's what he said. We trotted quietly up and down the folding hills to the northward. Suddenly, we caught glimpses of white objects lying along a ridge that led northward. We pulled up our horses. There was the battlefield. Here, 
Custer's luck had finally run out. Oh, my. So now they had found the the battlefield. So Oh, my goodness. And there was like 200 and what, 30 yeah, or 40 soldiers? Right there on the yeah. last stand, yeah. yeah. But anyway, Windoff went off. Uh, went to he uh, served in the military till 1883. He got married, left the army, and uh, died in, in actually 1947. That's the year I was born. I didn't know you were that old. Quiet. <laughs> thank you very much, Doctor History. You did it again, and I really want to thank Doctor Scott Morley and all of his staff. Great team at Burley Veterinary Hospital. They can take care of all your large and small animal needs, like I said a little bit ago. And they are your family veterinarian, and they treat all animals, large and small. And they also take care of after hours for all emergencies. You get a hold of them today. They are the best at what they do. Burley Veterinary Hospital in Burley at 2869 Overland and the number to call is 678-5509 bringing you the best of doctor history. You know, real quick doc before I have to leave and do another commercial. It seems to me like there's still a lot of education if you will about some of these battles and some of these old west stories that we still don't know. And I don't know that we ever will, but there's a lot of myths and mysteries out there of what really took place, and we rely on historians to hopefully put it together, but we still don't know for sure. One thing, though, and I want to ask you this real quick. I've got about 30 seconds. When you went to the Custer Battlefield, did you get the feeling that my wife and I had when we went to the Custer Battlefield? It was late in the afternoon, and I never have been in a more eerie feeling place. It was a cloudy day. Yes. It was in the afternoon. Yes. And... Yeah, it was it was an ominous feeling. It was. And I think a lot of people have shared that. I've talked to others yeah. that felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. You did it again. Home run. Thank, Thank you, you very Jeff. much. Doctor History. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.